we parted ways when we were still friends with a deep sense of love and respect for each other. But our story and our experience is that we did genuinely always put the boys first and also believe and say to them and then want to live it, we will always be a family. Jane Martino is an accomplished Australian entrepreneur who has built multiple companies and is the co-founder of the globally recognised not-for-profit Smiling Mind, a free online mindfulness meditation program that has more than 4 million regular users. Jane has been on the board of the Melbourne Football Club, is a powerhouse businesswoman and is the author of multiple books, including a series of children's books on wellbeing that will be released in October 2020. In this episode of Human Cogs, we chat to Jane about being a disruptor, the price one pays for professional attainment and the work she's done to push back on societal and systemic norms to live her life more authentically. We also explore how she and her ex-husband found a way forward together to create positive shared parenting strategies after their separation and how raising her three boys with transparency has helped anchor her during this time of transition. Here's our conversation with Jane. So Jane Martino, you have done a phenomenal amount in your working life and personal life. You've built multiple organisations to successful exit across the marketing, media and digital sectors. You hold multiple board roles. You're a mum to three kids. Who is Jane Martino? I am full of life and curiosity. Um... I'm someone who just loves trying new things. I've always been like that since I was little. And actually, I looked back recently at my school reports and literally since about grade one, right through to high school, there was a theme of disruption. So... What do you mean a theme of disruption? Well, basically nearly every teacher in every report at every year level said that I was disruptive in class or that I was disrupting others. Um, And that was a really interesting reflection point for me because I actually look back, you know, I feel like I have done disruptive things in my life and in my career. And then I look back at that and I think, actually, that's just so close to who I really am and the core part of me. And I think that is driven from that sense of sort of fun and curiosity and just following my intuition. Can we unpack disruption because it's got negative connotations like you're naughty or you're in the back row or you've been asked to leave the classroom. How do you define disruption? Well I think it still does. I mean now my boys get that in there. It's sort of calmer right because all their reports are full of it too uh, and up at school quite a bit. But um, I think it's actually a positive thing because I think it shows that you're you're questioning things, you know, you're asking questions, you're not just taking and absorbing everything that you're given, you're actually synthesising it for yourself and deciding what's right for you. So I think disruption can lead to exciting new businesses, changes in your life, changes of friendships, uh, learning that this environment's actually not right for you. Uh, But I think we run from it, definitely, and we see it as a negative right from when we're, or we're told it's a negative, right from when we're little. Yeah, except in the business community, we hear people described as disruptors who invent a new solution to a problem or find a way forward with a new business model. And so it's a celebrated term, though, in that context. So when does it go from not being a positive trait to being a celebrated trait? Well, I actually think that you're right. In some 
sectors, it's seen as exciting and important. But actually still, I believe in the corporate sector and my experience is, certainly on more traditional and conservative boards, that even if people say they want disruption and they're open to a disruptive innovator to come in, that's bullshit. Mm. So I think that, that that construct of disruption, you know, shh, say what, you know, when it's your turn, speak and that type of thing, it does kind of, it stays with us. And I think the difference is there's a collective of entrepreneurial, more disruptive thinkers in certain sectors that gravitate towards those sectors and those careers because it's inherently who they are. Mm. How did being a disruptor go down in your family of origin? Terribly uh, and, and continues to in some ways. You know, not that my parents, I was had a great childhood, I was so loved and adored by them but I think they found me hard to understand because they were and still are, you know, extremely conservative uh, and I was often, you know, my brother jokes was I adopted because I, I'm so different to everyone in my family, including him. How many siblings? So I've got one younger brother and my, I, you know, I'm the daughter of a librarian and a lifelong academic and also a, you know, religious background, very much there's certain markers in terms of, you know, what does success look like and what's important. So where did yours, when all this disruption was going on for you and it's in your mm. reports and you're this you know, human who's emerging, were you, were you conscious of that, that you were different to them and was that you trying to make your way in the world or you were just thrashing around in that disruption? Yeah, I think that's an awesome question because I've actually been thinking a lot about that lately because in some ways I feel like I'm more at odds and feel more disruptive to them now as a 43-year-old adult than I did as a kid kind of getting fairly average report cards and not, you know, I, I, I kind of got away with it because my marks were half decent. So I was like, well, I'm getting good grades so the teacher just doesn't like me. And so at that point it was probably a bit easier to digest. But as I got older and the career choices and the lifestyle choices and relationship changes started appearing, it probably, the level of disruption probably just got so much greater. So I think, yeah, I didn't feel it much as a, as a young person and even as an adolescent, definitely more as an adult, which is kind of weird. And I've actually, there's been certain junctures in my life where, you know, disappointing my parents in any way was actually a huge driver of making or not making a decision. You mean you would avoid to disappoint them or you would seek to, seek to disappoint them? I, no, I would avoid it. I would avoid it. So even though I was disruptive, I, I would that would be a real challenge for me. So it would it was still a big part of it was still important to prove. Was it proving something to them? Or I was think it so. Or just or? even just still maybe trying to squeeze into those boxes. Mm. So what's somehow. shifted? That's a, that's a significant shift. I think the shift for me is I've actually just done a lot of work on myself. I've dug deeper into really following my heart and living less for the external 
world and what I should. So probably less shoulds. And more uh, choose. Yeah, and more I feel, I want. This is important to me. This feels, this brings me joy. You've built multiple startups, had amazing success extrinsically if that's how, you know, one's looking at that. What was driving that then? I think it was exactly that. It was more living up to, you know, you're a smart person, you're going to do great things, you're destined to have your own business. You know, I think it was, and I'm not saying, I still accept that that whatever the motivator was at that time, that's my journey and there was a purpose in that. So it doesn't really matter what the driver was and I found deep enjoyment and satisfaction in that but I can definitely recognise that the drivers were certainly very, very different. Mm. So, you know, probably financial, you know, reputational, living up to expectation of, you know, friends, family, all of that type of thing, definitely. So your your definition of success has changed, it sounds like. How would you have defined success back then or growing up or in your family home and what is it today? Oh, I would have probably defined it more around having a high profile in business, having a long-term marriage, uh, having kids where nothing goes wrong uh, and they're perfect A-plus students. So basically expectation that is ridiculous versus now actually just a level of joy and contentment and being in flow mm. and feeling like I'm loving what I'm doing and sitting alongside my boys and working with them and not parenting in a way, you know, and I even this transition has changed even as I've become a parent. So I feel like <laughs> not only has my theory on success continued to to change and evolve but my theory on how to parent successfully is has taken a similar journey and actually. how to human successfully really you're doing you're, for yourself yeah and just how to be more human and allow them to be more human uh and I think because I've worked on that level of you know self-love and acceptance and less striving for the external that's really helped to shift so many other parts. How have you, how have you done that, Jane? Because it's such a common experience for so many women, particularly this perfectionism, this pursuit yeah. of just ridiculous levels of things and, you, you know, you're nodding. And, and so how did you – what's some practical tips you have for our listeners around how they can hack away at that perfectionism? Well, I don't think there's any other way than unpacking why you do it. I mean, that's – for me, it was hours and hours of therapy – lots and lots of like my self-help library is like the public library like it's just ridiculous if anyone listening ever wants a self-help book just knock on my door and I also love sharing that so I recently read Louise Hay You Can Heal Your Life which was absolutely instrumental by the way in just probably fast tracking a lot of this as well and I literally I hadn't even finished the book and I went on to Amazon and bought six copies because I was just like and I gave them away within two weeks like I just so for me the tips are you have to get someone to help you 
find and discover and uncover the reasons why. And I was probably afraid to do that and, and, and then, you know, had the courage and got brave enough to dive in many years ago. And then the curiosity part of me and the disruption came back up and said, actually, that was kind of cool, uncomfortable, but cool. What about this book or what about this? And, you, and then all of a sudden it just starts to unpack. And then you just have to embed ways to catch yourself when you slip back into the habits the habits Mm. I mean that's and meditation for me has absolutely also been the key to feeling comfortable to unlocking a lot of those nasties you know and those habits you're the co-founder of the globally recognized uh tech-based not-for-profit smiling mind which delivers free online mindfulness meditation um to young people was that born of that realization for you or Um, or did that come before your own? That actually came before. So I started, I resisted meditation probably for the same reason I resisted having therapy, to be honest. It's sometimes it can be uncomfortable and I was always, I'm so busy, my mind's never still, it won't suit me, I'll meditate by running or I'll meditate by doing things. (laughs) But then I had Tom and I was seriously sleep deprived and so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to try anything. And I absolutely loved it and quickly realised it wasn't about a quiet mind anyway. But what I noticed when I started to do that was I became way more self-aware and in tune with my behaviours and my habits um, that probably, you know, weren't necessarily positive for me or my family or the people I was leading. And so that was the start of it. But Smiling Mind was born purely from me. I'd sold my PR agency I spent some time in the boys' local community, so, you know, kinder and primary school, veggie patch, canteen, and I just saw anxious kids everywhere. And I just was like, that is not on and I need to be part of working out how I can help this. And James and I, my co-founder James and I caught up, he'd been a client and we became close friends And he's like, what are you doing? You've had a couple of years off. And I said, well, I'm actually playing with this idea of wellbeing for young people and delivering it via technology. And he'd been looking at UCLA and Harvard and all the mindfulness in education programs and bringing them out. And I said, well, humans, that's just inefficient for humans to deliver it. Let's combine our ideas. Let's get psychologists to write the programs and give kids all of the tools that we only got later in our lives but that have been so helpful Uh, And so that's really how it was born. So and make it a not-for-profit and make it free of charge because from the moment we came up with the idea, it was all about accessibility and all about people having that beautiful tool to start unlocking some of these things and feeling able to ask these questions and do the work so early in life. Mm. And it's got about 4 million regular users yeah, at the moment, and then you've gone on and released a book in 2016 called Mindfulness Made Easy. Is that for kids or adults? That's more for adults. So we did that to normalize. So at one of our whole goals is to also normalize, take the woo-woo right out of mindfulness meditation and mindfulness generally, and just be really human about it. So it's a lot of sort of funny stories of of James and my experiences, little tips, some meditations, and things like that. 
So. How would you, because there will be people listening who have never tried mindfulness or have a story that, like the story you told yourself, I'm going to do, like you said, I'm going to do mindfulness while I'm running mm. uh, or meditation, I think you said, not mindfulness. Yeah. And there is a difference. So let's just unpack the difference between mindfulness and meditation. What's your take? Well, my take, yeah, I can be mindful while I'm running. Exactly. So mindfulness is being completely in the present moment. So actually if meditate, meditation is a form of mindfulness or an expression of mindfulness, I like to say. So if meditation doesn't suit you, that's completely fine. There's plenty of other ways to be mindful. And now we've got so much content on the app and website at Smiling Mind, you can pick lots of different things, walking meditations and mindful sort of scripts. But I think the power of meditation is the fact that you are sitting still and just being. Uh, and even if your mind is busy, you are still giving yourself that time and headspace. Because I still hear people saying now, like you said to yourself, it's not for me, my mind's busy. Or the other thing I hear a lot of people tell me is um, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So their their idea of um, success is I think maybe a peace, a calm or even an empty mind. And I repeatedly tell clients and strangers, that's not that's not the goal. Mm, the monkey still chatters even if you're sitting still. The nirvana, that's a nirvana that they will never find mm-hmm. or that people only really like monks sitting on a mountaintop. I mean I have been uh, 15 years I've been meditating and some days my mind is busier than when I first started. The That's actually not the point. Mm-hmm. And m- meditation and mindfulness meditation is a form of attention training. So all we need to worry about is the fact that when we are meditating, we are bringing our mind back to the present moment. So when it runs away with us and the monkeys start chattering, as you say, we notice that and we bring it back. And that's the work. Mm. That's the magic. And so if we can stop striving, see, we're striving even when we're meditating. That wasn't a six, and I do it as well. I still do it. That wasn't, oh, my mind was so busy then. It should be, oh, my mind was busy, but it was really good how I kept bringing myself back Mm. to the moment and to what I'm doing. It's the judging brain that that comes in and overlays and we need to not, well, acknowledge the voice and then listen and, you know, like let it down the river. It's that kind of um, Buddhist Leaves on a stream. Yeah, releasing it. So you invest in stacks of startups and obviously know a lot of people who, who are very driven and there'd be a lot of pressure in their lives. Do you think that that's just a feature of, of busy people and people who are striving for success that they're going to get um, to a point where, you know, they're pretty overloaded or their mind is very active? I do, although I just... I feel like it's something that happens to everyone. I just in different ways. I I don't necessarily and I look at my life too. Sometimes my mind is the busiest when I actually have less going on. So I think it's more those those types of characters and the people that I work with and the person that I have certainly been at various points in my career are more the types of characters that just work so hard and they push so hard that they're at risk of burning out. So that's more a physical, psychological, emotional, you know, ticking time bomb, um, which is a little bit different to I think a lot of us just day to day have a lot going on in our mind and there's a lot, particularly at the moment with things like COVID, there's a lot 
people that are very worried. Some of the stats say 60,000 thoughts every day. Some of those thoughts are going to be quite hijacking and, and challenging. Others are going to be, you know, really mindless and forgetting to put the, you know, f- to frost the chops. But that is a lot of thoughts going on in our minds. And um, when I hear you saying I've done the work, it's another phrase that a lot of people, is kind of in the therapy space, a lot of people say I've done the work, I've done the, or I have to do the work or you have to do the work. What does the work mean to you, doing the work? Mm. Uh, facing up to the things you don't want to face up to, I think. The things you wish weren't true. I guess that goes back to your question and comment before about perfectionism. It's just this, it's almost like we don't want to explore our humanity. Or and our those, flaws and fragility. Exactly. Like, and yet... Those parts of ourselves and when we do that, it's actually the most amazing thing ever. And, you know, I I also find it gives me the ability to have the most beautiful connected conversations with the boys because rather than trying to present myself and that's how, you know, I probably, if I hadn't shifted my and done the work, I present myself as a perfectly polished parent I just present myself how I am with my flaws and with my and the acceptance of those and the discussion around those and hopefully that also gives them the platform and the forum to feel like theirs are completely accepted and they're loved with those flaws and that's kind of the beauty of it Mm. and they see you as you really are yeah They've seen me really broken. They've seen me, you know, it was my birthday early in the week and a lot of the things they wrote in my cards, are, you know, you work so hard and you're like they, I let them see that hard work and me diving in and I talk to them about the things I'm disappointed. You know, I missed out on that. I actually, that really hurts. Like I'm... I'm really disappointed about that because I thought I had it in the bag. You know, all those types of things that uh, many years ago I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been like that with my friends, I wouldn't have been like that with the boys and so before we started on recording today, you talked about the stories we tell ourselves compared to the stories we tell other people about ourselves. And it sounds like your two stories are getting closer together. Definitely. It just feels more authentic. And I don't, I mean, I hope that people that have known me a very long time, I wouldn't have described me, I I definitely don't think as inauthentic, but I felt it. And that's the difference. Like I think I felt I am, I'm feeding my friends a bit of bullshit here. Mm -hmm. And what are the markers within you that suggest that? Physiologically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, how do you know that? Oh, you just feel free. Oh, no, how do you know when you're not doing that? What? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I. it feels like there's an elephant in the room. It feels like there's something hanging. Like if you could draw a picture of it, it's like there'd be something just sitting in front of, you know, you've had an exchange with a girlfriend and you're like, oh, God, that's just, it was fun. We had good chats, but that thing is just sitting there because I actually did not speak my truth about this, this and this. 
And the difference when you let that guard down and you completely, you speak your truth, even if it's what they or the people in your life might not want to hear, that is, I mean, that feeling is so freeing. Has that freedom then come over into your relationship with your parents you spoke about earlier, now that you are more in your skin and in your story? Definitely. I think my courage to speak up and say how I feel has improved. Uh, I think the challenge is that it's probably harder for them to understand the, the shift and because the dynamic in the relationship has always been the same way for, well, at least 30, 37, 38 years. Uh, and so that's, that's a lot of time that something has been pretty much embedded. But, yeah, I am determined to also let it infiltrate that part of my life because I think I owe it to them. That's, you know, and also I think it's really good for me to to challenge myself and continue to to overcome things that, if I'm honest, like I'm scared of doing, you know, and, and kind of would prefer to avoid. Like what? Just having those conversations to say I'm seeing someone new, I know, you, you know, you loved my ex-husband and always saw that we should be a family but I'm really happy and I know you won't agree with it and be comfortable but like I hope in time that you can you know that you can be part of that it's just sort of and shifting perhaps that parent-child dynamic I think I have continued actually to act and behave like a child with them in that particular in that dynamic yes Mm. and and I read Glennon Doyle's Untamed recently and, I mean, I followed Glennon for years and absolutely love her work but this book was particularly fantastic, I thought, and, and that, that part of it really spoke to me because she went through a very similar process, you know, when she got together with Abby. So And talks about closing the drawbridge on her mother who she still loves and adores and has a close relationship with but she didn't want her mother bringing what she perceived as negativity onto her island which was now full of love and dreams and hope and possibility. Yeah and I think that was just beautiful because similarly I love and adore mum and dad. I just want them to understand and yeah come across to my my mountain and my my island uh, with that level of understanding and that's up to me to to help bring them on that journey. Uh, I think it's just that other people in my life have just been able to come on a bit of a, you know, turbo jet plane <laughs> as opposed to that one which might just take... Your parents are in a yeah. rowboat, but they're, they're in the boat. They are in the boat. A leaky boat. <laughs> so with this transformation, if you like, that you've gone through and, and switch, um, switch point... We often with female guests sort of talk about women and how women are in their dynamic and certainly Glennon Doyle talks about that and women can be harsh the way they judge each other. Mm. Have you noticed a a change in your relationships with the females in your life? Not really. Probably less so. I mean, girlfriends, I've felt like I said before, I've been more raw and honest. 
I think the one part of my life as a female business person, I would say I've been most authentic is probably in the business community in that I think I probably have missed out on various roles or opportunities because I have been authentically who I am, which is often very direct and upfront and disruptive. And I think, so I think where I say I'm doing the work, it's probably transformed more of my personal life than it has um, my professional life. The one exception I would take there is probably the level of vulnerability or willingness to share my struggles but that's not male or female. That is like across the board. I'm definitely more open about that. Um, Probably for the same reason, just letting go that I have to keep up this facade of being, you know, perfect and everything always going so well. Uh, But you have a business go under that you're CEO of and a marriage break up in the space of 12 to 18 months and pretty much there's no way you can pretend that everything's still okay anyway, right? So as well as doing the work, I also had external tests or challenges that kind of also forced me to just be much more authentic and real. Does gender come into it at all where you think about within your business life? Did you have to work harder fight harder because you were female or did you never did you never feel that no I've never felt that ever actually and I've always done things even though I went initially into comms and marketing which is fairly you know there's a lot of women and talented women in that space Uh, I the client base I had and built up was predominantly in property development which was all and not just male dominated, but really strong personalities. And I was 25 walking into boardrooms of the likes of Daniel Grollo and basically telling them what to do. And they were listening. I I think though, it started out as naivety, to be really honest, in that, well, of course, they would listen to me. And of course, I'm equal, you know, like, so I was in my mid 20s, I literally thought I knew everything. I mean, it's semi embarrassing now when I look back. (laughs) Uh, But, but I think so I think it was that and that then got me on the path of and gave me, I guess, that level of confidence. So I've never, I've never really come across that. Uh, And maybe it has been there, but I've chosen not to notice it. There's been a few times, particularly when I've been raising capital uh, and, you know, because I think those environments, it's changing now, but certainly back then, you know, I had one person say to me, oh, I met you at a dinner last week and I know you've got three young boys, so what's your plan with the business? And I said to him, well, I'm, this is just presenting you with the investor memorandum and my plan is to be CEO and run this business and scale it and I will be CEO until that's not the right thing for the business anymore. And I said, and I really think that if I was male, you would not have asked me that question and you would have just, you know, you would have just taken it that it was all taken care of on the home front. And he, because I just read Lean In, (laughs) so 
Yeah, he probably copped that. But um, <laughs> I, I actually think we should lean out, not in, because Cheryl talks about leaning into patriarchal or fixed systems that actually don't accommodate what the lived reality is for female founders. We should lean out and kind of redefine the paradigm of what it looks like to grow a business and raise a family successfully. Yeah, I th- exactly. This person didn't invest in the business, but I don't think he will ever ask a female CEO requesting capital that question ever again. So from my point of view, Job I think done. that was really good. Uh, so I have had things like that happen for sure, but is it dominant for me when I reflect on my career history? Definitely not. But in saying that, I also have made very smart choices all through my career, both in the males and females I've chosen to be in business with, interact with, and to be honest, particularly when I had my agency, Male or female, if anyone was badly behaved, they were gone. See you later. It's so my how, business. How not did you work like you. hone your instinct for that then? I think I've always been incredibly intuitive. Uh, I, I think I've gotten better at also not just letting that rule everything. Because <laughs> early on I'd say, no, I've got a good feeling about that person, I'd just hire them. You know, now I'm a bit better at having some rigour around other components that are necessary but I yeah it's it's really a, a gut instinct thing and first and foremost it's actually about the human because and particularly now through the experience with Unlocked and the business going under and basically being killed by Google within sort of an eight-week period you know who you have around you when a business is flying and a superstar business and everyone wants to be part of it and then who is left standing there when you look around and everything is falling to pieces and there is very few people there that's what matters and so you just need to make sure that whether it's personal or professional like is this person going to really be there when the shit hits the fan. Mm. Let's talk about another person being there when the shit hits the fan and that's your ex-husband, Matt, because um, let's declare the cards. We've talked to Matt on human cogs and the reason we were interested in in the story and talking to Matt was his uh, capacity, his lens, his outlook around co-parenting post-divorce. But, of course, it takes two people to Mm. co-parent post-divorce in a positive and productive and fruitful and healthy way. So you're the other 50% of that. What's your experience been of co-parenting post-separation or the separation process full stop? Yeah, I've been very positive. I feel very lucky. He's such a great human and I think for us... We parted ways when we were still friends with a deep sense of love and respect for each other and that's not always where people are at. So this, But our story and our experience is that we did genuinely always put the boys first and also believe and say to them and then want to live it, not just bullshit, and say we will always be a family. That means we will have weekly dinners. That means we will holiday together. That means we will stop our ego or our hurt or our resentment from overriding things that are more important. So I think both of us made a commitment to really 
be bigger than what lies underneath and individually do the work and <laughs> and work hard to make sure that happened and just do it. I mean, we we all have choices. I say to people all the time that are like in jobs they hate or in relationships they hate, you know, I can't do that because or, oh, but. It's like, no, 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 it's completely fine to make that choice and stay if that's what you really want to do. But just own, you are making a choice because you could rent rather than have a mortgage or separate from that person and work through it. And, you know, so I think we, we made the decision, we communicated really clearly to our friends and family that that was the ethos of the decision and that we would also all like to still be invited to everything together and be seen and treated as a family there's to be no weirdness, don't bother gossiping, there's no other, we still love each other, we're just not in love and this is how it's going to roll. The PR history has uh, <laughs> has helped you. I'm being kind of facetious but, but in some ways I'm not because I sit with so many couples who separate and often it's the external noise and external uh, influences that get in the way of the couple working out next steps. And so you being on the front foot and saying to everyone in your world, in your inner circle, this is how it is for us and this is what we want from you in that very explicit manner is really helpful. I think as well it's that stuff that causes massive anxiety for the kids, right? Like because if they're treated differently or that, you know, it's so for us it was also always about like what and that's why we emphasise this is this is how we want you to talk to the boys about it. I don't know and we've had moments and we've had weird things happen uh, and obviously when you both start seeing other people that's another level and layer but again, yeah, we've just worked really hard to not let that impact the relationship we have. Yeah, we have a family dinner every week and we have a couple of wines together and we do generally celebrate like what we have, you know, and is that what we started out thinking we would have? Is that what everyone around us necessarily would have wanted? Is that what the boys would have wanted? I don't know, probably not, but that's where it's at and I think we have made the best of it. And I think... There's Shivali Sabari is just so helpful in parenting but also like her take on on life and and divorce. So I think that's it's not about the time you have together. We've still got time together, but it's much it's not more about Shivali talks about it's not about the longevity of the relationship yeah. being the barometer of success. It's perhaps for those 10 or 15 or 5 or whatever years it was good for that for that period, but why should the length of a relationship dictate its success? And that's a, a real paradigm shift in our cultural norms around what is a successful marriage. Mm. But think about it in the workplace as well. People like used to be all about staying in a job for so long, and we've let go of that. That's not the norm anymore. Well, yeah, well, job and for life is gone. You know, in a gig-based economy and where the world's going, it's completely different. Yeah, so it's just. Like I think that it's good uh, and I've always said to people that have worked for me, I actually don't give a rat's ass how long you've been here. That means nothing to me, like absolutely nothing. Like what you do when you're here is what matters and, yeah, it's kind of cool to think about relationships in the same way. 
given you've started a bunch of different businesses and you've done an enormous amount of work in recent years to go deeper into understanding yourself and why you're here and who you want to be, what is a problem that you want to solve in the world right now? Mm, That's such a good question. And I'm actually spending a lot of time to try and work that out. A lot of people are like, what are you going to do next? And the problem I want to solve goes back to what we first started talking about. So I want to work out how I can be part of helping people unpack what they need to unpack and get the resources and the tools that they need at the right time. But I just haven't put my finger on how that's going to happen. Like Personally or professionally or both? Uh, both. So I look at it that it's like a big pie. Our lives are like a big pie. And so if I could have a way and, and then I look at my one of my big drivers, which is sort of helping people be their best and the satisfaction I get out of that, whether it's team members or working with founders or, you know, even just friends. I love that. And I have also seen, similar to the impact of meditation on myself, what that can do. So if, I, if we look at the big pie, at any one point in our lives, there's always areas of our life that we feel like, whether it's, you know, sex, family, parenting, work, that needs a bit of a tune up, right? So if we go into that and we and get people get to choose, okay, what is it that I need to work on? I choose it and then how can I bring to them and facilitate for them the types of things that I've done for people over here with meditation and mindfulness? Yeah, what that looks like, I don't know. There's little bits coming together, but it will be something like that where people are basically have the tools because I think there's so much rich information out there, but then people, even if they read and consume things, they're like, okay, but now how? Mm. Like how do I embed that into my life? How do I, how do I make that real for me, you know? Which is why I wanted a definition of doing the work because what is that? Yeah. What does that mean? And it sounds like doing the work is what you're wanting to explore next yeah, for other I'd, people. Yeah, I'd want it because the power of Smiling Mind and why so many people use it is because it's a tangible tool. It's something to do. It's easy to understand. And so, yeah, like what if I'm able to help people do that in the areas of the, their life that they need it the most. In a one-to-one or a one-to-many model? One-to-many. So massively scalable, global. Technology enabled. Te- of course. Yeah, of course. Sorry, dumb question. <laughs> How else uh, are you yeah. reaching the millions? Yeah. Oh, well, for- you have millions of facilitators who do one-to-one. <laughs> <laughs> Which is also incredibly powerful and I would never want anything like that nor Smiling Mind to replace that human work that you can do one-on-one with a person that's so complimentary but I guess this is just like this is a an added bonus or potentially even could be like a foundation for starting that work Mm. but it's in my mind and there's all kinds of inspiration that happen all the time about this so it's coming together and that's why I've been using the time just to consult write be creative meditate exercise, Percolate. feel joy. You could do the Bill Gates. He goes to the forest for a week once a year with no tech. 
But, like, going that offline and letting all those other things, the intuition, the creativity, all of those things come up as you come toward what the bones of the idea looks like. I sense that in you, Janie. I can feel in the story that you've told a sense of sort of pulling back and not striving Mm. and in that pulling back and loosening the reins a little bit. Definitely allowing. So I think I've always had a beautiful, innate sense of spirituality actually and connection and intuition and great things that have happened to me that I have allowed. But I also in the past with my striving perfectionism have also done a lot of pushing. It's what Gabby Bernstein calls pushing and, um, you know, um, manic manifesting and pushing energy. And so, yes, exactly, I have... I catch myself doing that still uh, at times, but I've definitely stepped back and this is being born from, yes, solving a problem, but also actually what does bring me joy. Mm. But it's so hard when the rhetoric around us is pushing back on that to say, how do you monetize? How do you scale? How do you make, how do you get more, be more? And you're saying, but but the joy has come from not those things. Yeah, and I think that doesn't mean and, – and I've been one of those people sat, sitting across the table and assessing the investment. <laughs> so, I, you know, it's not – that's not a bad thing. But, yeah, it's it's a certain driver and I guess that's the shift for me. I'm not saying this isn't a business that I could scale globally and monetize really effectively. Maybe I will do that, maybe I won't. I haven't got that far yet. But – it's not my key driver. It's not the reason for being. And my true belief is that, yeah, if, if, if you can really connect with the reason for being in your business, then it'll be a success regardless. Totally. Well, the Japanese have, it's called ikigai, yeah. right, the reason for being, mm. where it's this confluence or this conflation know, of, it. you know, what you love, what you're good at, what you're here for all comes to one in this nexus of purpose. Mm. And yeah. it sounds like you are getting really close to hitting that spot yourself. We'll look forward to following the journey of iPi. Um, We like to end all of our chats by asking our guest a question. We acknowledge that life can be really messy and the planet is a tricky place to be for a lot of us. Who do you think is doing human well? Oh. Wow. Who do I think is doing human well? That is such a good question. Oh, there's probably a lot of different people. Someone that I was thinking about today, though, is Taylor Swift, actually. I She released a new song today called Cardigan, um, which she wasn't planning to do. And I so it was a combination of, A, I've always loved a bit of Tay-Tay. <laughs> B, I saw the Netflix documentary that she did and I thought she was – immensely courageous how she talked about uh, two things. One, the challenge she had with her physical appearance and eating. But two, um, at the awards night, um, I think it was Kanye talked about how Beyonce should have won the award and it was just devastating for her. She was so young and how she coped with that. I just absolutely Uh, my thoughts about her, she just went so high up in my estimation. And then this album, she talks about the fact that, yeah, she wasn't planning to release an album. She's been jamming at home and doing And I just think she is incredibly talented, but also 
like a super cool role model. She had a lot to say about Donald Trump and politics. She knew she'd get so much flack. She didn't give a fuck. Like I just, I, I yeah, I think, I mean, there's so many people probably, but she's definitely one that comes to mind that I was just thinking about today. So she gets my vote. Go Tay-Tay. Go Tay-Tay. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Human Cogs. We know that being human is pretty messy for the best of us and we really hope these conversations challenge what you think you know about yourself and maybe some others in your orbit. And you know, Mads, as a psychologist, I know I'm having a good day at work when people say to me, Sabina, I've never thought about it that way before. That's what we hope your experience will be listening to Human Cogs. So if you want to find out more about other episodes or about this episode, jump on our website at humancogs.com. Hold up. 